the Feynman technique. I did a video about this uh, and I posted it yesterday, so I'm actually recording this the day the day early because I'm going out tomorrow and uh, it's going to be an exciting conversation about research. Uh, but the Feynman technique, I did a video about it explaining some of the research behind it and some of the, I guess, lack of research behind it. And this is where I'll Excuse me. And uh, this is where I want this conversation to go. So most of the research that I have found with the Feynman technique is blogs and articles and YouTube videos and people talking about something but not actually having any citations, any research, anything to back up the claim. And when you actually dive into, like I did, uh, the research, there were there were three papers. One of them was in Chinese. The other two, one said it worked, one said it didn't work, and that was about it. Uh, so why are people pushing this Feynman? technique and I think it's because of this marketing that's been put around it and when I when I dived into where the Feynman technique really came from because it didn't come from Feynman uh, it came from someone that had read something uh, read something from a book and they thought yeah let's call it the Feynman technique because he sort of does bits of this uh, and attached it to something else so someone had created something named it after someone famous uh, and then wrote a book about it and then loads of people started using that technique as a thing uh, and this this framework this technique that was being used is suddenly this this really useful thing that loads of people know because it's, it's shared all over social media and even though it's not necessarily fake news because the Feynman technique does work with, uh, with with some nuances and caveats put in there because the Feynman technique itself is learning through teaching. That's basically what it is. It's using explanations, using dialogic learning, using conversations to help you understand something. And your different levels of understanding require different conversations and different ways of teaching the information through different mediums, which could be flipped learning, something else that's used in teaching, or just group conversations, or maybe teaching other people to do it which is kind of like an element of flip learning and um, but yeah there are loads of different ways that the 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 parts of the Feynman technique are already used in pedagogy in in education in teaching in coaching it, it's already used so why do we need this added name why is this Feynman technique needed what what is the purpose of that name I don't think there is one I think it's marketing this this is my personal opinion I think it's just something someone has said for them to understand it and they've just put some marketing on it which is fine um, but I think it blurs the line between what learning is what teaching is um, and I think it makes it harder for people to actually look at the research behind what it is that they're they're doing or what they're meant to be doing um, and I'm actually going to relate this to active recall space repetition and some of the other elements that are shared in the the study tube world um, well I, I say study tube because YouTube is where the majority of this information is shared but it's also on blogs it's also in articles I, I'm not talking academic articles I'm talking articles that are they're not blogs but they're articles on websites uh, so yeah, the Feynman technique. I will leave a description. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave a link to my video in the description. I don't normally reference my own stuff, but uh, all of the references. I think I've got like forty something references from articles, blogs, papers, and stuff. They're all linked in the description of the video. So I will leave that in the description of this podcast. Now we have the relative age effect, which is kind of like a, a sideways. It might sound sideways, but the relative age effect is a uh, is something I did a video on a while back, and 
doing some research about the article that I'm writing on the relative age effect, uh, a relative age effect in men's but not women's professional baseball, 1943 to 1954. That is the, the, the reference that I have on my notes, and it's actually an article, but there are lots and lots and lots of different papers, uh, that's just the one I happen to pick, uh, that talks about seasonal births um, being different from the relative age effect. So essentially, seasonal births is where you're born in summer, winter, uh, what are the other, fall, I don't even know. But yeah, the, the different seasons rather than the months. Um, I really should know the seasons, but I don't really pay attention to that sort of thing. Um, and being born in a different season of the year can actually impact health, uh, health, health, health things. Um, ADHD has been linked to it, um, uh, schizophrenia has been linked to it, and lots of other things that are health-related are linked to seasonal births because of the potentially the, the potential mechanism is the temperature that you're, you're born in and, and you're raised in. Uh, and there are a couple of other potential mechanisms that are being spoken about. I don't know too much about it because seasonal birth uh, effect isn't something that I have researched in depth. But I now know, having researched the relative age effect, that the seasonal birth effect is also similar but not the same because the relative age effect moves with the different groupings of ages, giving advantages to individuals born um, in the, the first quarter, wherever that first quarter is. Whereas the seasonal birth effect doesn't change, it's, it's summer, it's summer all year round. And this is where the naming of things, so this is how it links with the Feynman technique, the naming of things can make things complicated. Because getting a, con a, a, a consensus on what the relative age effect is becomes very difficult when you have other effects that are very, very similar with small nuanced differences because when you actually look at the seasonal birth effect and what it does it's very very similar to the relative age effect but the biggest thing that changes that, that, that makes the difference is the seasonal birth effect can't change throughout the year whereas the rel relative age effect can but you need to make it change through society either that is you're only going to pick people from a certain uh like you, you change the, the boundaries, so you maybe you pick the last three months of one year group and the first three months of the next year group, so you change the boundary going backwards or change the boundary going forward, so you mix up those school years, uh, or you make it bigger, you make it, uh, make it smaller, or you try and level it out in some way, and there are lots of different ways uh, that sports and academia have tried to level it out, but... The naming makes it very difficult. And on top of that, when considering relative age, there's also been research in the relative age effect, the other side. So instead of looking at younger individuals, it looks at older individuals. But in the older ages, uh, the, the effect is kind of like the opposite, the relative age effect. Typically, if you are older, so you're born at the beginning of the year, you have the advantage. But in mature athletes, well, you actually want to be younger. So you want the effect to be the other way around. So the relative age effect is kind of like the opposite, which makes it very difficult for researchers, individuals, and practitioners to figure out what is going on. So there needs to be a general consensus around what the thing is, what the name is. With the Feynman technique, there is a consensus around the four steps, but there's no consensus around what the thing is. Okay, identify something. Great, that's obvious. Uh, explain something. Explain something what, where, how, why, when. There, there are so many questions in there, and there is no definition to what or where it is to separate the Feynman technique from any other learning technique. There, there just isn't. Um, explain it to a five, six-year-old. Why? 
How does that benefit? Again, th there's no link to any research there. Uh, and then you have find the gaps. Well, everyone needs to find the gaps in their learning, otherwise they're not going to learn. That's, that's kind of what happens, which I will expand on in a minute. Uh, and then the last one being share it or put a narrative around it. And that's basically use it or lose it, which again, we already all know. So... Expanding on that, there was a there was a really interesting article that I read called "Natural Learning in Higher Education." Now, this this is specific. This article was specific about university education, higher education. So that's undergraduates, postgraduates, postdocs, PhDs, all of those sort of individuals, and they were talking about how a lot of the education in higher education isn't really needed, um, and essentially they're talking about natural learning. So the natural learning elements, the I need to identify the topic, if we're talking about the Feynman technique, identify the topic, or explain the thing, or learn the thing, find my own gaps. All of that learning is natural learning. You, you, you know that you need to do certain things to learn. If you ask anyone, okay, how do you learn? Well, uh, do you need, do you need to identify something to learn it? Yes. Um, do, do you need to do some sort of research to learn something? Yes. How do you make sure you don't forget it? Well, you practice it. it, it and it, it's natural learning. And what they were arguing was that a lot of higher education has been uh, business-fied. That's not really a word, but I'm going to use it. It's been business-fied in the way that the feedback, the feedback that students need to give lecturers is not about how well the lecturer, the individuals challenged the, in, uh, the, the, the student to learn. It's how well the student felt uh, during, during that time. Now, that student will feel more comfortable most of the time when they're not being challenged, when they're not being told that they're wrong, when they're not struggling. If someone is struggling with something, it's not a pleasant feeling. But... If universities are going to be asking, well, how, how did you feel? They're not going to say, oh, yeah, I felt good. I was I was told I was wrong all the time. <laughs> it kind of goes against one another. Um, so the lecturer needs to find a way to make the students feel good, feel like they're doing well, feel like they're succeeding, giving them a, a, a sense of success whilst also trying to challenge them through learning. Most people, for most people, learning is uncomfortable. It's not meant to be comfortable. Uh, but if you're going to be testing for how students feel, well, <laughs> you're kind of saying, okay, are you feeling uncomfortable? Yes, good. But but that's, that's not what people want to see. That's not what people want to hear. So what tends to happen is the degrees either become easier or they become more self-explanatory when uh, lecturers are explaining things, which actually makes the education worse. Now, this is a subjective, um, subjective opinion uh, from my experience. This is what I've seen. Uh, and this is what this article was talking about. So I would highly suggest having a look at it because I'm probably not doing it as much justice as I could do because I, I don't know the ins and outs of the article well enough. But the, the main points are still very, very valid. And I'm going to give you a, uh, an anecdotal experience now. But from my experience at the university uh, that I was at, there were two courses, well, there were loads of courses, but there were two courses that I was mainly involved in, one of which was sports coaching, which was my undergraduate course, and the sort of like the, the sidestep course was sports science. Sports science was the, the course that everyone did. Now, sports science was a massive course, and they needed good feedback, and they got good feedback, but the lectures were very, okay, this is what you're going to learn, A, B, C, D, have you learned it? Yes, good, now remember that for the test, which literally was a test. So, <clears throat> 
the degree was more about, okay, this is the information, remember the information, regurgitate the information, now you know sports science. And that was it. Whereas sports coaching, they didn't have a very good satisfaction rate because the lecturer said, oh, okay, how do you know that? Why is that true? And he was constantly, or they, because all of the lectures were very similar, they were constantly challenging and pushing you to find answers. And if you didn't know the answer, you kind of felt silly sometimes. I mean, if he, if, if I say he, if the lecturer, I have a specific lecturer in mind and I don't want to name him just in, just in case uh, anyone listening to this doesn't like it. But yeah, so there was a lecturer and if he asked you a question, you could answer that question. But then if you didn't answer the question in a way that really made sense or there was no nuance or there was no specificity to the question, to the answer, it was just a general statement, he would say, okay, he wouldn't ask, can you be more specific? But he would ask a contextual question. He would use constraints-led approach to coaching. He would use a constraint uh, and only afford you to answer in a way that requires you to have a deeper level of understanding. And if you didn't have that deeper level of understanding, you'd either look silly <laughs> um, or you'd have to say, I don't know. And if you don't know, he would then try and, and fish it out, fish out something from you, which is what learning is. It's fishing out answers, fishing out conclusions, fishing out potential solutions to issues that you may have. And if you don't know the answer, and you still don't know the answer, after a little bit of fishing, a little bit of testing, then you need to go and research. You need to go and understand. But now you know you need to go and research and understand because you've been challenged. But he challenged you all the time. And he always challenged us. And even with the pre-reading, even if you did the pre-reading, there was still a challenge there because he'd, he'd go on a side tangent that he knew about, and you suddenly get it and go, what? That doesn't make any sense. And you get lost. But if you got lost, and you didn't like getting lost... Well, that's not good. So he got low feedback in how well the course was, but students learned more. They, they, they just did. When you, when you spoke to a sports coaching student about what they were learning, how they were learning, what was going on, how you could apply it, they could give you a fairly competent answer, most of them. You are sports science students, most of them were lost. Most of them didn't know what was going on. They were just passing the tests as they came up, and they were just so focused on writing the, writing the next lab report rather than actually learning anything. Now, there were, obviously, sports science students that were learning things, but that is where I think the, the narrative that's been put on this, oh, yeah, learn this thing. Learn this thing because it works. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and I will link this back as well uh, to what I was talking about earlier, but before I do that... Here's another point. There was a there was an article written by Tom Sheringham. Oh, Sheringham? Shering, Sherrington, sorry. Um, and he was talking about the Rosenshine's principles. Rosenshine's principles are essentially principles in teaching. They are instruction-based principles of how you give instructions to help uh, students. Uh, and obviously, sports, sports science students, sport, uh, and the, the PE, the PE students, and the QTS students. A lot of the lecturers were using these sort of principles, whether they knew it or whether they knew it or whether they didn't. They were using principles of instruction to help learning, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's quite useful. Um, but a lot of the instructions, they were sort of following through, or it seemed like they were following through. Uh, and like Tom said, it, it, it's kind of common sense. They're, 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 they're just kind of common sense. Um, now, I'm, I'm not going to go through all of the instructions and the principles and stuff. Uh, I, I will leave, again, a link in the description for you to have a look at Rosenstein's principles. Oop, that was my mouse. Um, but 
the 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 question I would ask is: Are we trying too hard to overcomplicate things? So these Rosenstein principles are really nice. They're a really nice way to look through all of these instruction-based principles for teachers to learn. But again, we're simplifying all of these different things. Um, and sort of getting rid of the, the narratives around things, getting rid of the, the context around things and making them a little bit more generalized so we can consume it better. Um, but it, there's, there's still fairly, fairly obvious things to do. Uh, and again, linking this back to the Feynman technique, there are elements that are just fairly obvious to do. So why do we need this naming, the Feynman technique? Why do we need the naming Rosenstein's principles? Because do you know what happens to Rosenstein's principles? People take some out, people add some in, people change the names of things. So why do we need these principles? Why do we need this name of things that we use? Um, and it's the same with theories, uh, cognitive load theory. Okay, this is a great theory, but some people take stuff out, some people add stuff in, some people change them in the words. So why do we need the names of the things? What What is the purpose of these things if they are fairly obvious? Because cognitive load theory, uh, generally speaking, basically says if you're told too much information, you can't remember it. Okay, that's kind of obvious. Uh, and if you can't remember what you've been told, you're less likely to learn it. Okay, cool, that's kind of obvious. So what? Um, and and this, is, this is my point. If... If we have all of these names of information and we have all of these techniques, all of these theories, all of these uh, different ideas about stuff, and we, we dump names on them, the naming is useful for conversation about the thing, about the topic, but it adds jargon and lingo. So for people to understand what you're talking about, they need to have a level of understanding that they can use those things um for for whatever it is that's going on. So uh, I actually have a link to, um, uh, what's his name, John Sweller, and his research on cognitive load theory. Um, I'll, I'll put a link in the description for a really nice webinar that he did about it, but he spoke about all this stuff. Um, and I'm looking at that thinking, well, that links to loads of other things that the YouTube study space have spoken about. And I can even link this to Veritasium. Veritasium has done his PhD on videos, on YouTube videos, and how misconceptions and myths uh, and mistakes, and when you're shown to have made a mistake, you are more likely to learn something because it affects cognitive load. But to know that and to understand that, to understand what cognitive load means, you need to have a deep understanding of what cognitive load theory is, which means that if you're going to understand an explanation about why Veritasium's PhD works or doesn't work, you need to understand loads of other things. So adding all of these, adding all of these, these named things, these marketable terms uh, into places actually overcomplicates the area of learning because you're adding all of these terms, adding all of this lingo and jargon for individuals to learn about. But what is it all? Most of it is obvious information. So instead of using terms like the Feynman technique or uh, rote learning, most people know what rote learning is, but there are some nuances in rote learning that differentiate rote learning from space repetition, active retool, dialogic learning, associative learning, conditional uh, operant conditioning, and all of those sort of like learning elements. As, as soon as you add those terms in, suddenly there needs to be a deeper understanding. So how do we reduce deeper understanding and make learning easier for people that don't understand what is going on? Forget the terms, stop using the terms. Um, but for the deeper conversations, we can use the terms as long as we explain the terms 
for whoever we're talking about so that the nuance and the the, the differences are there because what I st- what I tend to see in those conversations in the deeper conversations so for the conversations with people that have a lower understanding of all the jargon and lingo in learning and pedagogy science don't use the terms forget the terms and just explain natural learning processes as they are and then you can link them to all the other different jargon and lingo and terms afterwards um, explaining what they are as you go along so that people aren't lost but when we have these conversations about deeper learning theory instead of just using deeper learning theory and saying this technique this thing add nuance add context active recall active recall is not flashcards but that's what i see i see people say flashcards active recall no no active recall is an element of learning flashcards is something that you could do that uses active recall but flashcards and active recall they're not the same thing uh, and this is where i think the the explanation of the jargon and lingo need to be a little bit clearer in the videos i mean if you don't understand the differences or you haven't uh, looked deeper into something same for me if you haven't understood something or don't understand something then Make that obvious, make that clear that this is the research you have done so far. This is where you are currently at with your level of understanding, and this is what you're explaining. Rather than saying, okay, active recall is really good. Space repetition is really good. Why is it? How is it? Where is the research? Back it up. Um, and then once you've done that, actually put some nuance on it. Because most of the namings of things leave out context. Feynman technique leaves out context. Space repetition leaves out context. Working memory leaves out context. So add the context in. And when you add the context in, you need a deeper level of understanding with the citations, with the references, with proof that what you're talking about isn't rubbish. Um, and that is where I think a lot of the, um, the, the, the public sharing of information becomes very difficult when it comes to, when, when when you're looking at fact checking how do you fact check what someone has said in a youtube video if they don't reference any of it if they're talking about jargon that you don't understand that you don't know where to find and if you have to like find research about it and there's no research about it how do you learn about it it's very 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 difficult so i think uh we we have a an obligation as individuals that are talking about learning, that are talking about pedagogy, that are talking about learning theory, that are talking about studying, to explain what ourselves, what's going on, uh, the science behind things. And we have, I think, uh, an obligation to show references. Now, I've been bitching about references for a while, but we need to share references to the research, to the sources. So any level of understanding that is someone is watching, whether they are someone that has no idea what you're talking about, they don't understand any of the lingo, any of the jargon, but they understand natural learning and they can sort of figure it out, um, but they want to have a look, then they, there needs to be a reference uh, or a citation or something for them to go have a look at to get a deeper understanding. And the same can be said for everyone else along that journey. Uh, so when, when, it, when it does come to sharing the information, instead of sharing information through jargon, through lingo, through complicated terms that are most of the time unnecessary just say what it is and if you don't know what it is then don't talk about it <laughs> just just uh just a little bit of a rant going if if you don't understand something well enough uh to explain it now this isn't the Feynman technique i'm not saying you need to explain it in a uh to a five-year-old but if you don't understand something well enough to explain it in a way that people can understand it then there is obviously uh, a level of understanding that you are missing you could be 
that you th- you could be that you th- you think you are at a level five understanding. I'm going to put an arbitrary number on it like I did in the video. You could think you're at a level five understanding because you understand this jargon and all this lingo, but actually you're not at level five. You just know some of the words at level five, but you're actually at level two and you're trying to explain it to a level three. Um, and this is where I think perceived level of understanding, this is where my potential PhD could be going. Uh, this is where I think perceived level of understanding affects what is going on. Now, Feynman's uh, quote that I mentioned in the video talks about him not being able to explain something to a freshman so he doesn't understand it. Now, that's not him not understanding it to a deep level. That's that's him not understanding the, the level that he's trying to explain it to. He may understand it level 10, but he doesn't understand it at the level a level three would understand it. So he doesn't know the terms, the words to use that would be familiar to that person because he is so far away. And the same could be said for a level one. A level one can't explain something um, to a level 10 in a way that they understand all the nuance because they don't understand the terms and they're not familiar with it. And the same with a level 10 to a level one. It's familiarization of terms, which is this jargon, this lingo, this, these complex things that people are adding into. So just use the words that are obvious to make it easier for everyone to understand and for everyone to explore and learn about. Now, I, I was listening to a podcast, a coaching-specific podcast, the LTAD Network podcast, um, and he was talking. They, they were talking about coaching. And Ash Cox is his name. He was talking about... Uh, mainly adolescence in the gym. So strength and conditioning focused, but he was also uh, sort of leaning towards how coaches talk, what coaches do, how coaches behave. Now I'm talking specifically sports coaches, but he said something that got me thinking. He said, coaches are too serious. And I fundamentally disagreed with that when I first heard it, and I still disagree with it quite heavily. Um, but he said, coaches, uh, coaches take things too seriously. And I disagree because I don't think coaches take things seriously enough. What I think he meant from my understanding of the conversation he was talking, like the the way he was talking about this conversation and the things that he then went on to say was that he thinks sports coaches take things too seriously in that he wants, he wants like the coaches want the players to win. They want to get better. They, he's, the, the coaches are focused on performance rather than participation. So I don't think it's the seriousness um, that is the, the issue. I think it's the direction of the effort that is the issue. So they are focused on, we need to win at all costs. I'm not going to play you because we need to get this player better or we're more likely to win because of this, or you need to train five days a week to get better, or you need to run loads of laps because of performance, those sort of things. I think that that is the element that he was referring to when he said seriousness, because you can have a serious coach that is evidence-based and practiced and player-centered and participation-focused, but they are serious about the research, they're serious about their job, um, or just volunteering uh, hours. So I think the seriousness... Uh, seriousness of a coach of a teacher of a creator because i think a creator has a has a responsibility as a teacher and as um as a, as a coach because everyone looks to social media to creators to learn things so they have an element of responsibility to to teach um and i think taking it seriously will help everyone. Taking it not seriously, if, if you don't take things seriously as a coach, as a teacher, uh, you could be lazy. T- uh, students can make mis- uh, make assumptions, they can misunderstand things, they no- won't necessarily learn things. And in, in fields of academia, maybe there's uh, false false information that's shared. I mean, look online, there's loads of false information shared because people aren't serious enough about sharing information. Um, and I, d- I don't think, I don't think uh, that's going to change. 
But I think that is the problem. I think people aren't serious enough about the consequences of actions. And when you're coaching, when you're teaching, you need to be serious about what could happen, where uh, information could go, what false information could could uh, lead to, because false information could lead to lots of different real-world implications. Uh, and coaches, no. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily like football coaches at a weekend coaching like the six, seven year olds. No seriousness. If they're not being serious, it's not going to have like a massive impact on, on politics in the world or somewhere over the place. But all those individuals that you're coaching, if you're not serious enough, maybe they're not going to play sport. And if you, if you, if you lead, lead out the thought experiment, if they don't engage in sport because you're, you're lazy, you don't care and you're not serious enough, maybe they're not suddenly active. And they're not active, then they don't grow to like activity. Maybe they eat too much, and then obesity. Like it's it's a common link that inactivity leads to obesity. It's one of the health issues that we're currently having all over the world. And if you've got coaches that aren't serious enough in trying to engage people in activity, then where are they going to get their activity from? Because most youths get their activity from sport. Because going into a gym is dangerous. Because when you look at the coaches and the instructors in the gym, they are not serious enough. They they do not focus on particular participation in the gym because most for whatever reason instructors are focused on aesthetics let's look big let's look strong uh, let's lift loads of weights not let's just move let's let's just move that that's not the focus of a lot of instructors and strength and conditioning coaches unfortunately because strength and conditioning is high performance so they they're not interested now this is partly the profession's fault i think um Strength and condition coaches, a lot of them aren't interested in people that aren't high performance. <laughs> and the way the education works, because this is what I've seen, the way the education works is this is how you coach uh, an elite athlete. Periodization, blah, 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 going through it. Great. That is perfect. Strength and conditioning is strength and conditioning for individuals, not strength and conditioning for elite athletes. There is a difference. Um, so adding in some nuance there. So I think we need to be serious enough about our sharing of information and being serious, I think, means reducing the jargon, the lingo, uh, and all of the, the complicated terms that we use to explain things, and just not necessarily dumb it down, but use words, use explanations that the majority of people that you're targeting will be able to understand. If you're talking to an audience that has deeper levels of understanding, use the jargon, use the lingo. That makes sense because then you can be more nuanced in the conversation. If you're talking to a wide audience that are less likely to have a deep level of understanding, i.e. the internet, then either use the jargon and lingo, but explain the context that you're using it in. Explain at least some of the nuanced information about the jargon and lingo that you're using or don't use it and just use simple words and simple terms. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to use the Feynman technique, just say, okay, explain something to someone else and try and teach them instead of using the Feynman technique. Because if you say Feynman technique, they're going to have to research or look it up. And instead of saying, we're going to use dialogic learning, just say, okay, we're going to communicate. We're going to have lots of conversations um, with different people. You're not wrong, and people understand what it means to have conversations. Now, if they want to learn more about why conversations work or why teaching uh, helps learning, then you could either explain that in however or wherever you're sharing it, or they can go find out themselves in some way, which you can reference to. So that's that's my my little rant right there. Um, all of the links will be in the description of the podcast, and like I say, I'm I'm going to try and share some of these these lower level and deeper levels of understanding in videos moving forwards and I'm always open to feedback so uh, have a good week